This is the current federal tax developments for the week of November the 7th, 2022. Current federal tax developments are brought to you by Kaplan Financial Education and by your State Society of CPAs. I'm Ed Zollers, and we're going to talk to you this week about what's been going on in the area of federal taxes. And a couple of things this week. First, follow up to what we discussed last week. The IRS, at the end of this week, uh, released the Form 1120S Schedule K-2 and K-3 Draft Instructions. And as we'll discover, their exceptions are very similar to the Form 1065 version. So pretty much take what we talked about last week and apply that to your S-Corp clients as well. As well, we'll talk about the a report from Tax Notes from the AICPA fall tax, basically fall tax section meeting, where the IRS gave some indication on when they expect to be releasing some guidance, at least certain guidance, on Section 174. We'll also just talk about a case where the tax benefits alone, the court said, were not sufficient to provide a profit motive in order to justify a taxpayer's investment in a program that involved buying solar lenses, which were leased back to the promoter. Finally, we'll talk about a private letter ruling this week where the IRS granted late rollover relief to a victim of fraud. But let's start with the draft 2022 Form 1120S Schedules K-2 and K-3 Instructions. They're released on the IRS's draft form page. Uh, just go to IRS draft, just basically in Google, Bing, whatever search engine you want to use, search for IRS draft forms, and you should be able to get a link to the page. And in that page, you would probably look for Schedule K-2 and that would give you the K-2s that are up there, the instructions and forms. And this past week, as I noted, the IRS released the 1120S versions. They're by default on the page shown in chronological order, kind of reverse chronological order. So the most recent stuff's always on top. So as we talk about this today, the 1120S information is on the first page. I'm recording this on Sunday. I suspect as we get into the week, though that's going to move off that page and you'll be searching for it, but you might go take a look and find it. We had wondered when the uh, 1065 was released, the 8865 versions of the K2 and K3 release, but we didn't see the S Corporation version, if there might be significant changes in the exceptions for the S. But reality is that there are no major exceptions, no major changes in the key exceptions we talked about last week. So effectively, for the domestic filing exception, that one where we have to make, you know, get, send a notice to the partners, now to the shareholders, and then wait a month and see if we get a response back. Well, those dates are the same. So again, if you qualify for this test and you intend to use it, you have to notify all of the shareholders. And that notification needs to be postmarked or email, you know, postmarked, whatever, it has to be dated no later than January 15th of 2023. That's because that's the date two months before the due date for a calendar year S corporation return. Then we have the same one month day and that one month day is going to be February 15th of 2023. And if you are going for the domestic filing exception, as long as no shareholder sends back to you a notification that they're going to need the information, on Schedule K-3 to complete the return, you're essentially allowed to skip filing it if you meet the requirements. 
Now the requirements, this one shows three requirements as opposed to two, or as opposed to four, but really what we lost was a requirement that made no sense in the S-Corp context. Uh, if you want to remember it, you can have no foreign activities and or minimal foreign activities. Minimal was essentially only foreign taxes withheld uh, on a passive income that came to you via a 1099, either interest or dividend, or came to you via a Schedule K-1 from a trust or estate, or came to you via a Schedule K-2 or K-3 from a partnership. Right Again, you shouldn't be getting a K-2 or K-3 from an S-corporation in an S-corporation, so we'll skip that. So if you meet all those requirements, then you, you know, same rules of partnership, you'll still have to provide people, you know, you still have to provide the shareholders with their share of that less than $300 worth of foreign taxes. But as long as you do that and give that information out, you don't need to do the full-blown schedule K-2, K-3, as long as you meet all the other requirements. So basically, again, this means too, there's, there's no exception here for a one-person S-corporation. So as a practical matter, even your one-person S-corporations should be issuing these notices if you believe they're going to qualify for the exception. So, And in fact, some ways, a one-person S-corp may be simpler because you can explain that to them anyway. It's easier than issuing these notices to 12 partners, only, you know, let's say, two of whom you do the, ten, you do the 1040s for, and the other 10 have it done by other people, or they use TurboTax, or whatever they may be doing. And that can end up with a lot more questions in that in this scenario. So essentially, pretty much the same rule. As well, we talk about the uh, 1116 exemption exception, which is a really long name. Uh, but that also is the same. That is, if all of your shareholders qualify because they have less than 600 if filing a joint return or $300 of foreign taxes, all the taxes they have come off of 1099s, right, for interest and dividends, all the income is passive, or it comes from K1s, from trusts, or K3s from partnerships and S-corporations. If they meet that requirement, they don't need to file the 1116. Now again, to get this exemption is a lot more work because you have to get every partner to certify to you that they qualify to meet this exception, and you have to have them get that to you by February 15th. Now, as with the partnerships, if you meet the domestic filing exception, but a, part, but a shareholder notifies you after February 15th that they need the information, you will again, as with the partnerships, simply provide them with a copy of the K-3 you would have filed with the IRS, but you will not file a K-2 with the IRS and you'll not file the K-3 with the IRS. So, as I said, basically go back to last week's program. You'll find the discussion there for the partnerships. Basically apply that to the S-Corporation. As well, like the partnership, we didn't discuss this last week, so I'll mention it here. There are some clarifications in there about the use of country codes, some limited cases where the code XX can be used, uh, and also a discussion that you got to go check the 1116 instructions for other exceptions. Uh, this is the back doorway, as they told us last year in the FAQ, that yes, if you got mutual funds, they don't have to give a country-by-country -country breakdown, and therefore, the obviously, the partnership or the S-corporation is not going to be giving that breakdown as well. So that's also discussed in there. So 
pretty much the same. The K issue there, we have the same deadlines that we probably think are coming up a little too quickly. Uh, but it's the same as the partnership. So good news is we don't have to learn a brand new way of doing this for the S-Corp. Next up, we have an article by Nathan Richmond uh, that is titled Research Amortization Procedural Guidance Expected This Year. It was published in Tax Notes Today on November 3rd of 2022. Now, this was, you know, Mr. Richmond was reporting from the AICPA's Fall Tax Division meeting in Washington, D.C., and he was reporting on a presentation given by Wendy Fries of the Treasury Office of Tax Legislative Council on November 2nd, 2022, at that meeting. And Wendy provided that the agency is aware that procedural guidance on changing the accounting methods for Section 174 is really needed by the end of the year. If you don't remember, under the changes that were enacted as part of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, beginning for year 2022, taxpayers must capitalize and then amortize over five years, or 15 years if offshore, research. So if you've done any research or experimental expenditures, you have to capitalize those and amortize them out. Obviously, since we have been writing them off immediately, that's going to be a change in the timing of a deduction that is going to require an accounting method change. And even though the law requires it, we still have to have IRS permission. So the agency is somewhat aware they should get that out. It's a little concerning that they've been aware of that since the you know, Tax Cuts and Jobs Act passed back in 2017. And just now they're racing to try to get this out before the absolute last day they could. The problem if it slips into the next year is that people then begin sending in, you know, people would have had to have filed a non-automatic change request, and it's basically too late to get those for 2022 effectively at this point. So yes, they're going to have to do something automatic. But the more interesting thing was there was no comment made, no commitment made on when the substantive guidance, because that's the other part that they've agreed to give us is how in the world does this work? What are the expenses that are covered? And, you know, how are we supposed to deal with that? That there is no commitment on that. That may come next year. But as it stands right now, we don't have any guidance in that area. So keep, you know, keep watching here. But we're getting now into the last two months of the year. We're beginning to quickly run out of time uh, to know for sure how the IRS is going to interpret the changes on Section 174. I seriously believe the agency was hoping that Congress would make this, you know, kind of reverse this out, allow us to expense. That has been talked about multiple times. I suspect that was the intention when the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act was passed. This was, as I have called it before, a simple budget gimmick to make the numbers look right. And they thought they'd come back later and in a separate bill that no longer had to get the votes of people that didn't want to see the deficit go up any more than X percent, that they could come back this year and or at some point in the future and be able to kick that forward. The problem is that that fix, even though it was discussed last year as part of the Build Back Better Act, it never got attached to a bill that actually came close to passing. It was not part of the Inflation Reduction Act, which was Build Back Better Act greatly reduced, and this was not in it. It may be part of a year-end extenders package, but that's far from certain. It's possible it will be passed in the next Congress. 
uh, retroactively, which would be less than optimal, shall we say, but Congress really worries about optimizing for how the tax law works in this area. So we'll just have to kind of keep our eyes open on what's going on in that area. Next up is a case from the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals. This is the case of Olson versus Commissioner. Uh, these are case numbers 26469-14 and 21247-16. The opinion was released on November the 4th. Now, this was a little bit of an odd situation. The taxpayer had purchased solar lenses from a promoter, and the theory was that we would lease these back to the promoter who would use these to produce energy. Now, as you'll discover if you read the case, the promoter wasn't really even sure how he'd do it. But, you know, but the theory was that these lenses would heat up some sort of substance that would then be used to turn turbines, which would then be used to create solar energy. Well, as I said, we never got past really just some bare experimental stages, never actually generated any electricity. But he did sell these solar lenses to various, you know, investors. Uh, the theory being, and, you know, and he sold them to them very much based upon the fact of these tax savings that you could depreciate, you know, you get bonus depreciation on the solar lenses when you put them in service or when, you know, when you bought them from them. And in theory, he put them in service. I will say there is a, uh, there is a concurring opinion that also discusses, in addition to the reasons why the entire panel gave for disallowing these deductions and credits said that literally the stuff had never been placed in service. So regardless of whatever else you look at here, uh, you couldn't have gotten the deduction because the asset was never placed in service. It was never ready and available for its intended use because we never really quite clearly knew what the intended use was. So that, that was one of our problems that we had here. But we skipped that. Now, it was an interesting arrangement because the taxpayer, Mr. Olson here, when he bought lenses, he only paid 30% down. So he paid 30% of the purchase price. The other 70% was on a note. And the interesting aside here was the note only had to be paid essentially if these lenses actually generated electricity and be paid from the, you know, low, or for what was essentially going to be, you know, the money they made off it, which was very minimal. I mean, his, his lease was going to be $150, his lease payment, I believe it was it per month, uh, on these lenses, if they actually generate electricity. It wouldn't be like a percentage of the electricity or any sort of other participation. It would simply be a straight payment. And as the court will point out later, uh, even had they succeeded and started generating electricity at that low lease rate, it would have taken 23 years for him to recover his entire investment. But by only paying down 30% and borrowing the rest, and then being able to uh, treat the purchase price as over three times what he paid, he was able to recover the entire amount that he paid for these lenses simply from the reduction in tax based on his depreciation and the Section 48 energy credits he was claiming on, you know, a business energy credit related to this. So you kind of get the idea. It never needed to do anything or make money. The tax benefits would be more than what he paid, and that's the economics that actually sold the package. 
As I noted, the project never really got running except for a few tests. It was rather clear. And also the court makes clear the taxpayer either immediately or very shortly after investing was very skeptical that it could ever work, right? Really believing he thought the lenses looked to be of poor quality, really didn't look like this was something that was, you know, likely to really take off and work, but he still kept buying lenses despite knowing that this thing was never likely to ever work. And obviously a problem is going to arise there is why would you keep buying these things if you know for sure the business is never going to work, right? Why would you enter into this? Well, that's where our problem comes. As I noted, if the project had worked, the lease would only be 150 per month and it would take 23 years to recover what he had paid. As the court pointed out, and he'd noted about the poor quality of the lenses, it's not clear the lenses would have lasted 23 years. They could have potentially lasted long enough to even have paid off. And remember, this is merely getting back to square zero, no interest yet, no real return on investment. So we've got to go well beyond 23 years before this would begin to have any sort of minimal return on the initial investment of Mr. Olson. Again, not necessarily the best investment we've ever heard of. But as noted, it didn't need to be because the tax benefits were what gave him, you know, the paid off what he had given to the promoter. So now the court starts looking at this issue. And the IRS alleged that he had no actual profit motive in this transaction, that he was solely motivated by obtaining a tax benefit or wiping out his taxes, essentially is how he kind of even phrased himself and certain marketing materials did. And the taxpayer said, no, 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 he, he had an economic, you know, he thought it might be viable and, you know, and it still made money effectively for him. Now we do get down to made money because of the tax benefits, because there was no other positive cash flow coming his way in this. Well, the court did, because we're talking about whether there was a profit motive, it did look at, interestingly enough, the uh, factors under the hobby loss rule, found at regulation 1.183-2B. And those factors, like did you have a business plan? Did he do sufficient research? Uh, you know, is he in a position where he could afford to just absorb the losses? etc. Those nine factors, which honestly are kind of a pain to work with and realistically aren't very helpful, but the court went through them and the court found that eight of the nine factors went against finding there was a profit motive and the ninth factor was simply irrelevant, you know, or maybe slightly in his favor. There was no element of personal pleasure, shall we say, in, you know, having bought these lenses. It's not the same as the um, traditional issue we see with a physician who loves, who, you know, who gets into horses and ends up, you know, doing these horse breeding operations where it seems like he's not doing much except um, being able to ride the horses. And that's personal pleasure side of it as opposed to actual business. So that's the only thing. And yet it seems a little difficult to find the personal pleasure from these lenses, which we discover eventually he never even saw. He didn't see them. He you know, really didn't see his. He didn't know where his were. He didn't, you know, he never really took possession of his lenses. So that was a little different. But the court, and this is what made this one a little more interesting this week and why I brought it up. The court also looked at tests under that 
in the Tenth Circuit come from the Nickerson case. And what that looks at is for five factors to determine if there might be a profit motive. Is or is there not a profit motive? And things that suggest there are not are these five factors in Nickerson. If marketing materials focus on expected tax benefits, the taxpayer buys the item for a grossly inflated price without negotiating, the taxpayer doesn't ask the seller about potential profitability, the taxpayer lacks control of the entities, or the taxpayer used non-recourse debt. Now this comes from a 1992 Tenth Circuit case, Nickerson versus Commissioner. Now the panel found that three of those items were indicators, clear indicators, of a lack of profit motive in the case of Mr. Nickerson, or Mr. Olson, I should say. Nickerson had his own issues. The first one they found that went against him was the marketing materials he received focused effectively solely on the tax savings. So the court noted that the promotional materials, which had actually been in the, uh, you know, essentially been offered as evidence, you know, had statements that, you know, prominently made statements like your objective in purchasing your solar energy lens system is to zero out your taxes, buy our solar units with your tax money instead of giving it away to the IRS. Okay, those are not good statements to find, especially when the document is kind of limited on discussing the potential wonderful returns one would get from this. You know, suggests it is solely a tax-driven uh, transaction. Now, why marketing materials do this is because of something that I think should be clear to anybody who's ever worked in tax, and that is that for a lot of taxpayers, if you say the magic words that this will save taxes, like their brains just switch off, right? That's all they need to hear. They stop listening to anything else. And the marketers know that. Talking about this rather unlikely to ever work, unlikely, not even a real idea currently of how it's going to work, you know, not really any great, you know, history this guy had of putting projects like this together that generated all this electricity. All of that's kind of bad to talk about. So they're going to talk just about the tax benefits, right? And what that suggests is that Mr. Olson's only motivation here was to, you know, save his taxes. And this was added to by an email that pitched to him when he, when it became clear he was interested, he received an email pitch that said, literally, Liz said, you may be interested in our new solar tax credit program. I would like to set up a time where we could talk about it in more detail, but I will give you the basics of the program now. And he said, number one, decide how much you owe in taxes, personally or business. Buy our solar units with your tax money rather than give it away to the IRS. Give the IRS forms number 3468, number 3800, number 4562, and Schedule C instead of money. That's interesting. Okay. Receive nearly double your investment from the IRS in tax benefits. And get income off your equipment for $35 years. I'm not sure what that meant. Okay. Well, as I say, except for the very last statement where he'd get income, and we didn't even specify what type of income, uh, for supposedly 35 years, assuming those lenses could last that long, which the court was skeptical of, uh, everything else was discussing tax benefits and was, you know, led with, let's face it, you lead with the key things. And the attractive thing there was to essentially be able to get out of your taxes by buying this and, you know, put money in here and it'll reduce your taxes by more than you put in. So you're ahead of the game, you're cheating the government. Isn't this wonderful? Yeah, well, okay. 
as the court said, they found the marketing materials weighed against the profit motive. Uh, you know, they said from Nickerson, marketing on the base of projected tax benefit is a common component of transactions lacking a profit motive. Yeah, marketing materials hurt. And that's something to keep in mind when your clients come up with these programs to you. If the program primarily discusses the tax benefits, you know, and just rarely mentions the actual economics of the what we're doing, that's a very bad sign because on exam, yes, it will be held against you. Secondly, the, they noted that he paid an inflated purchase price for these lenses without going into any negotiations. As they point out, the court said, you know, he conceded he'd not negotiated a purchase price. And there was no evidence about the market value of the lenses. He purchased these for each lens, $30,000 in 2009 and $3,500 in 2011 to 2014. Uh, he had, after paying for the lenses, he had to lease them to an entity controlled by the promoter. That lease would be free unless the system produced revenue. And if the system were to produce revenue, he would only pay him, actually it's 150 per year, not month. As noted, at that rate, it would take over 23 years for him to break even. No evidence they would last that long. And they said, despite the fact that this looked like a bum deal, super low payout lease, right? You didn't get any money from the lease unless it worked, which meant that even this minimal amount of funds weren't going to come your way unless it actually produced electricity. You were yourself wildly skeptical that it would ever do so. Why would you agree to pay $30,000 per lens for something this unlikely to ever be able to give a return, you know, or even just the 3,500 in the later years? And the answer was pretty simple. Well, you know, he didn't care about that. His only care was he didn't care about making money, a true profit from the, you know, leasing activity. He cared only about the money he would make from the federal government. That was the idea he went with. And finally, they noted that, you know, well, and the, and the court, I should say in this case, the court also noted here, the willingness to forego any negotiations suggests the lack of profit motive. Again, quoting from Nicholson case, grossly inflated purchase prices set without bargainings are common components of transaction lacking profit motive. In the real world, no businessman is going to buy on these terms something this bad, right? In essence, you're probably not going to buy at all but if you're going to buy, you're going to suggest the lease has to be redone. You know, you're going to suggest that, you know, that, you know, I'm buying this. I'm leasing it to you. I shouldn't be taking the risk of you fouling up the project. You know, aside from the risk, you might be unable to pay me. I don't, I shouldn't take the risk. You, you should be the one taking the risk since you, if it does generate electricity, you're the one primarily going to benefit. Finally, he lacked control over the project. Uh, you know, Mr. Olson admitted that after buying lenses for two years, he did not fully understand the project and explaining that people asked him what it was specifically that they would be purchasing and he didn't know, right? He didn't understand. He lacked any control of the operation. I don't even know what you're buying. You're clearly not running the operation. And the court noted it went, it got worse. Not only did he lack any understanding of this particular program, but he never took possessions of the lenses he had bought and he couldn't identify which ones were his. Uh, given that inability to identify the lenses, uh, the court reasonably could find a lack of control over the business which would weigh against a profit motive. 
Again, from the Nicholson case, they quote, the taxpayer's lack of control over activities is a common component of transactions lacking a profit motive. Okay, it looks bad for the taxpayer, but the taxpayer did have one final argument. They were going to say that, well, yeah, but because it made money off the tax break itself, that, that, that means they did have a profit motive, right? They intend to make profit. And the Olsons rely on a Ninth Circuit case, Sachs versus Commissioner, which was a Ninth Circuit case from 1995, where the taxpayer did hold that a taxpayer's investment wasn't a sham, even though the activity had become profitable only because of a solar energy credit. The Ninth Circuit recognized that Congress sometimes used tax incentive to change investment and behavior, and when taxes did intend for tax incentives to change investment behavior, a profit motive might exist even if the tax benefit had been essential to the profitability. But the court found that they could distinguish this case. In the case of Sachs, there was an underlying economic transaction. Now, it was high risk and it would not have been profitable, you know, most likely, except for the tax benefits given. But since Congress was given a subsidy and Sachs had invested not just to obtain those tax benefits, that it found was a very different case. As they noted, uh, you know, the, uh, the Olsons have not shown any expectation for the solar leasing business to become profitable even with the tax benefits. You know, they intended a big tax loss to offset his wage income, and they have not shown a clear error in this, in the finding of the court. So they found this case inappropriate. They said, if tax savings are your sole reason for entering into a transaction, then that's the definition of lacking a profit motive. You don't care. It doesn't matter. It's irrelevant if the underlying business makes any sense whatsoever. That's not something you care about. That's not your issue. So ultimately, the court found that he did not qualify for any depreciation deduction because there was no trader business. And because the solar energy credits under Section 48 only are, are available if you qualify for depreciation or amortization, the court also found that, therefore, the solar energy credits were out. Now, Mr. Olson did try to argue too late, so the court didn't deal with this. Uh, that, well, since, since they use the hobby law section of 183, you are allowed a deduction for depreciation on 183, just up to the amount of your income. Well, the court dealt with that by noting that, A, uh, since it had zero income, it would still been no depreciation allowed. But, B, uh, he raised the issue too late anyway. He didn't raise it at trial. And he can't raise new issues on appeal. Uh, but I doubt he would win that one, is kind of how the court read it. As I said, we did have a concurring opinion that also went down the path of saying, look, these, uh, these lenses were never actually placed in service. And never being placed in service, they wouldn't have been eligible for depreciation. And we go down the whole path as well. Effectively, though, this illustrates the case of you got to watch what your clients are marketed. Right? They're going to get a nice, fancy you know, brochure. They're going to have a very good glib salesperson because that's what you buy. You know, you want marketing people. You don't necessarily want tax, tax experts. You want marketing people that look like they're experts. And that's usually what these organizations have. Certainly, it appears in this case that we had neither a tax expert nor an, nor an expert in the basics of generating power from solar devices. Uh, there was no expertise there except separating people from their money, it would have appeared. Uh, you know, so he was good at that, I guess, was the promoter in this case. That was 
kind of the problem. You got to watch this and be very careful when the only thing the client can tell you about when you ask them why you're doing this is the wondrous tax savings. They have no idea about the other underlying economics. That's a really good sign that this, if the IRS challenges it, is likely to be blown up. It'll be found to be a sham transaction and all tax benefits will be disallowed. And since this thing never could make money and the promoter is likely uncollectible in terms of recovering money from, uh, the client's just out whatever they got taken for. Now, next up is a case that's kind of interesting or a private letter ruling. This is private letter ruling 2022-44029. It was issued on November the 4th. And this is a case of a taxpayer trying to get a late IRA rollover. And we don't see as many of these anymore because the IRS now has a very broad set of automatic cases that covered some of the things they used to have to issue a lot of private letter rulings for. And that's good for taxpayers because private letter rulings cost money, right? They're not zero cost and they take quite a while to get. But this turns out to be a case that's not in the IRS automatic list. Whether it should be, be another question, but it's here. Now, this is a taxpayer uh, who essentially one day was trying to access her bank account when she received an alert on her computer to contact a representative from an unspecified third-party company. As instructed, she followed the orders, right? Contacted the individual who falsely claimed to work for the company, right? So what it'd be, something like this, you'd be on your website, and I suspect something got on her system or she visited a fraudulent site, somehow got tricked to go not to the site. So you think you're on ABC Bank, you get a pop-up saying, contact ABC Bank immediately. It would give you a phone number to call. You know, there, there, there's a problem with your account. People, you know, tend to now, oh no, my money's there. It's horrible. There's something wrong with my account. I got to do something. Frauds often, especially on computers uh, or phone calls, are going to rely upon getting you doing things without thinking. And getting some panic into the person is very useful. And you're going to see they're going to play panic to a really big extent here. Okay. So she calls the number, which of course is not company C. Um, you know, it, it's not the bank. She's calling a number that's not the bank. She's talking to a person who though tells her, you know, answers the phone as ABC Bank, ABC Bank Fraud Department. You know, this is Harry, may I help you? Right, and so he starts doing this and he, he told her that somehow the bank had figured out that hackers from some country that was specified here had downloaded illegal material onto her computer and taken money from her bank account. I find it interesting that the bank would know they had downloaded things onto her computer. That's not likely they'd know that. They might know money had left her bank account in suspicious circumstances, but he has a lot of knowledge he shouldn't have if you start thinking about this, right? Now, he contacted her to contact another person. That other person, supposedly with the bank, was in the anti-fraud division of the bank, right? And he told her, that she would have to secure her funds to protect them from the hackers and that the illegal material on her computer right now meant she was guilty of this horrendous federal crime, that she could be locked up, right? Locked up forever. She's a criminal, but he's going to help her cover this up, right? And keep anybody from discovering this, right? So he put her in contact with a third individual who claimed to be a federal officer with the agency and assured her that, well, the only way to get out of this and not go to jail 
was to, you know, was, was for her withdrawals, right, was basically was to secure their assets. So she would transfer those to the supposed federal agency. By the way, he didn't work for that agency either, right? You could realize that the, these three are in cahoots, right? They're, they're all working together. They're working, they're, they're working the mark. So, you know, she did that. that then, the Fed, then they would give her a check to reimburse her for withdrawals made from the income. Uh, you know, the last two individuals both told her not to tell anyone else and warned that she would be arrested for illegal materials on her computer if she called law enforcement. So don't call the cops. Don't call, don't, don't call anybody. Don't contact anybody because they're going to come out. They're going to find this illegal material on your computer and, oh, you're just going to be in trouble. Well, what eventually happens that, okay, she did it. She withdrew the money from her non-IRA accounts and she withdrew the money from the IRA. On a date that was more than 60 days after the distribution from the IRA had gone by, uh, those last two individuals, you know, the anti-fraud bank person and the person with the government agency, uh, told her that she could tell her spouse about the withdrawals. At this point, it turns out, those, everybody who was involved disconnected the phone number she had been calling because they realized as soon as she told somebody and she couldn't keep it quiet forever, right? She would eventually have to tell her spouse that, you know, her, their IRA money was gone. Her IRA money was gone. You know, eventually that's something usually you'd have to tell your spouse eventually. And obviously when you tell a third party and instead of having this happening in front of you right away, bang, 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 and just going under panic, continue to follow orders, you get this a few weeks later and she starts telling you this your spouse is probably going to start going, something doesn't sound right at all here. Like, nowhere right. Right? Not, no, 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 no. In fact, I'm sure she began to suspect this, but again, she was so deep in it by the time, she already got, let the money go. She already had this out. It became one of those things where once you're victimized like this, you, you just keep hanging on on the hope it's legit. Because if it's not, you realize everything's gone. Well, she realizes it now for sure, because as she said, the phone number she'd been assigned, uh, you know, had been reassigned or were no longer in service. And finally, she contacted the local law enforcement offices to report the fraud. Yeah, finally. Of course, after everybody had skipped town, she reported the fraud. So now she has a problem. Now, based on this, she asked the IRS to grant her the right Apparently, she did have other funds available, so she could return funds and at least restore her IRA account. The IRS, in this case, yes, under the ruling, you know, which is found there at Revenue Procedure 2003-16, they found that this was a case where obviously it made sense to grant the late rollover relief. Now, obviously, the IRS can't give her her money back because that's not really their job uh, in this case. It's more of a problem she's going to have with the bank and whatever insurance companies and probably just going to be out a lot of this money because unfortunately, you know, what they did and the scammers are good at this is they got her to voluntarily take the funds out instead of, you know, having, you know, somehow accessing her account illegally. They got in, they got it done, they got her to do it. That makes it a lot tougher to reverse this because everything's kind of coming under her account. And I guarantee you, wherever she sent the money, all traces of that are also gone by this point. So, wasn't good. Uh, this case is probably more useful just to remind you and maybe remind your clients of the nature of these frauds. 
Um, you know, people like to be trusting. People jump too quick. Remember, if you're being panicked, if you're being panicked, you know, to do something because of an email, a text message, a phone call, or something popping up on your computer out of the blue, back off for a second. And I think a key thing which I've always suggested is, even if, as I know, for instance, I know certain credit card companies that I've had over the years have gone ahead and sent me a text message if they were concerned that somebody might have, you know, charged something on my credit card that wasn't authorized. And of course, 99 times out of 100, it was, but th th it was authorized, not unauthorized. But still, you have those calls. I never call the number in the text or the email or however they notified me. I always just call the number on the back of the credit card and then they will connect me to the fraud department. And at that point, we now know for sure that there is, you know, in essence, they, they would know about any fraud issues and it's a much easier. The biggest mistake she made was calling that phone number, which again, we, we don't know from the private loan that it was the bank, but I suspect it indicated it was the bank's number. Uh, calling that number and accepting that on the computer that that was the number to call, that was a bad move, right? She should have just backed off for a second, taken a deep breath, and called the credit card number, right? And also, warn your clients, never, ever, ever withdraw funds from the account. You know, banks are not going to tell you to take money out of the account or, you know, and neither is law enforcement going to tell you to take money out of the account and send it to them. It's not how this works. So just, just back off for a second. This whole thing was set up on, you know, continuing panic and then convincing her that she was at odds of going to jail because of illegal material on her computer. And yeah, sad story, but unfortunately not all that unusual. This has been the Current Federal Tax Developments for the week of November the 7th, 2022. Current Federal Tax Developments are brought to you by Kaplan Financial Education and by your State Society of CPAs. Ed Zollers, again, coming here from Phoenix. Uh, it's cooled off a bit here now. And it started rolling across the country now, so it's coming from west to east. It's getting cooler in a lot of places uh, as we look at this. Uh, I was in the Midwest this week where it was unnaturally warm. I am told by now unnaturally warm has gone away. So we're back in that. Uh, I do tend to look at and you know watch for emails on my email account, edzollers at currentfulltaxhelpless.com. I also monitor the Connect sites for the Arizona Society of CPAs, New Jersey Society, for the Minnesota and Illinois societies, and uh, also keep an eye on if anything comes up on the Idaho discussion boards. So if you remember those societies, you can post, and if you have an issue or something and I see it, I'll try to respond. Otherwise, we will hopefully see you back here next week, uh, see what else comes up here in federal taxes, and uh, you know, be able to maybe discuss whatever developments have come apart at this time. At this time next week, we will be just at this point, uh, getting ready. We will actually, I should say, know the election results. We'll know something of them. Uh, so we'll see if that tells us anything about taxes. Probably not. Again, what people promise when they're running for office is not what tends to happen. Uh, secondly, I know we have people right now promising things on taxes that literally there is no way they can deliver on, right? It's one thing to say, this is what I'm going to push for. It's another thing to deliver on it. And currently, you know, most likely result is going to be a split uh, between 
control of Congress and the presidency. And that tends to mean that you're only going to get things that everybody can agree upon, which tends not to be what people run upon, you know, run on in their campaign. So do I think we're going to see a radical change? No. You know, I think we're going to see pretty much what we got now uh, for the next two years, but maybe I'll be wrong. We'll see. In any event, we'll talk to you next week here on current federal tax developments.